0: Finish, uh, we're continue on our series, Defending Our Faith, and this morning we're going to look at how God, or how could a loving God, send someone to help. That's something that the world struggles with. In fact, um, some Christians even struggle with that itself. And so, when you look at um, something like God being loving and gracious and kind, um, it begs the question, how could he sentence somebody to um An eternity of suffering. So we're going to look at that today. However, in order to discuss this topic, um, we have to really broaden the discussion. The real question is, is there anything after life? What happens after this life? Does the soul live on after death? If not, then there's no purpose in debating hell, is there? Likewise, if we discuss hell, shouldn't we also talk about whether heaven exists? And then finally, we need to discuss what determines where one goes after death and why. So really what we're looking at is, what happens after you die, and how do you get there? So we'll broaden our discussion out a little bit and try to answer this question, how a loving God could actually send somebody to eternal punishment. Let's look at what the world actually thinks on this. Some believe that this life is all there is, and there's nothing more. Some of you might remember the name Hutchins, a famous atheist. Um, recently, or in the last few years, have made claims regarding, you know, um, how silly it is to believe in an everlasting God or an eternal God and life after death. And when we die, that's all there is. There's nothing, nothing more. Atheism has become somewhat all the rage in some respects. Some millennials are um, adopting that philosophy as well. Others believe that we're simply reincarnated after we die; that we just keep coming back. We've talked about that in some of those world religions. But most people, especially here in the United States, believe in some type of afterlife. Most people believe that there is a heaven and a hell, but ideas on heaven and hell actually vary if you think about it. Some question or challenge the idea that a loving God could actually create a hell, insensibly there. In other words, God is all love, and therefore um, there's no such thing as hell. So the concept is that God is just all love and there's no condemnation. Some claim that hell is a made up concept simply to scare people into accepting God. In fact, there's a young lady that I went to high school with that I think I shared the story where after I graduated from college, I became a Christian. Well, I was raised Catholic. I became a born-again Christian uh, while I was in college. And she, for the most part, became either agnostic or possibly atheist. And her reasoning was that God created the hell. How could I worship a God like that? That sounds like an awful mean and awful brutal God. Some believe that everyone goes to heaven. That's the opposite of that. Everybody goes to heaven. Um, there's also some Christians that actually believe in something called annihilationism. Do you know what annihilationism is? You know when it used to annihilate somebody or something? few um, years ago, um, Rob Bell came out with a book. He was an emergent church leader. Um, published a book, Love Wins. And he began to, began to promote this idea that after death, if you don't go to heaven, your soul is completely annihilated or eradicated. There is no hell. And so he's promoted that idea. He was the founding pastor of a church called Mars Hill. Um, I'll be real frank, he's a heretic in a lot of ways. Um, but, but he got some traction, especially within something called the Emergent Church, to where even some Christians believe that no such thing as hell because God is a God of love and grace. And how could he create a place of eternal punishment? And so even within the Christian church, there are some who deny the existence of a hell or deny the fact that God could actually send somebody there. So we're going to talk about some of those things today. But as we do each week, after we look at knowing the challenge, what we're up against as Christians, um, we want to look at knowing the truth. So go ahead and get your Bibles ready, because we're going to be bouncing around quite a bit today. It's pretty clear, the first point I want to make is that it's pretty clear that the Bible teaches that there is life after death. The Bible's pretty clear about that. And it's also pretty clear that this life after death involves either eternal punishment or eternal life. There is one or the other: either eternal life or eternal punishment. Turn to Matthew chapter 24, verse uh, 25, verse 46. Matthew 25, verse 46. And then we're going to do quite a bit of bouncing around today. Matthew 25, verse 46. We'll actually start up in verse 41. This is Jesus talking about the judgment, what happens after life. Verse 31, actually. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Verse 34, I'm sorry, verse 33. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. In other words, the righteous on one side and the unrighteous on the other side. After discussing some of this, Jesus, if you jump down into verse 41, he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, these are the unrighteous, into eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the Bible makes it clear that after death there is either eternal life or eternal punishment. How about John chapter 3 verse 36? John writes this, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. So we have there the wrath of God superimposed up against eternal life. How about John chapter 5, verse 24? It's a couple chapters away. John chapter 5, verse 24. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And so what we have there is eternal life superimposed or juxtaposed to judgment. The last one I want to look at is just 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. First Thessalonians chapter 1. themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living true God, and to wait for the Son from heaven, who He be raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And there we get just the general idea of this wrath to come and how we rescue from that, and that ultimately is eternal life. Paul also writes in Thessalonians: These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power you know that the phrase eternal life actually occurs 50 times in the New Testament. So it's pretty clear, the first truth we want to understand is that the Bible teaches that there is life after death. And that life after death comes about either um, in the presence of the Lord or under his wrath. And so that's where we come up with the concepts of basically heaven or hell, if you will. So the Bible teaches that there is life after death. And it's either eternal life or eternal judgment. So the real question is: Is there any evidence of this? Is there any evidence of life after death? I got four. Was it four examples here? Yeah, I got four examples that I took from the scriptures. Um, anybody want to give me an example of life after death from a historical perspective? Do we have any examples or proof of life after death? There's actually some good ones. In fact, there's one that's just the anchor of our faith. What's that? Yeah. The resurrection of Christ is probably our greatest example of life after death. We have the empty tomb. Um, We have his appearance to the apostles. It says that he appeared to over 500 different people in the 30 days after his resurrection. (coughs) We also have the radical change in the lives of the apostles and in the establishment of the church. And so probably the greatest example we have of life after death, that something happens after you die physically and end up in the grave, is the resurrection of Jesus. The fact that he rose from the dead is the greatest evidence we have that something exists after this life. We're also given the promise that Jesus Christ will return. It hasn't happened yet, but when it does, that will be evidence as well, correct? There's actually another evidence from the Old Testament. Does anybody remember um, a dead person appearing in the Old Testament? Basically, well, I shouldn't say it's redundant after his death. A dead guy after his death. That makes sense, right? Anybody? There's an example of of a dead guy, if you will, appearing alive after his death. It's a tough one, though. It involves a witch. Yeah, okay, but Saul was alive. Did did anybody remember the story? Saul was trying, he was going up against the Philistines, and he knew that God wasn't happy with him because he was calling on God and God wasn't answering him. So, does anybody remember what he did? Saul had banished all the mediums and the spiritists and all those who conjured up dead people and all that, spoke to spirits and demons, and banned them all from Israel, which was a good thing. But when God refused to talk to him, what did he do? He actually sent some men to go find a witch, the witch at Endor, and asked the witch to conjure up somebody so that he could talk to him. Does anybody remember who that was? That was Samuel. Samuel was the mouthpiece for God. When, When Saul needed to know what God was thinking, Samuel was the one that told him. Well, Samuel was now dead. And God was not speaking to Saul. So he asked the witch to conjure up Samuel so that Samuel could actually talk to him. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 28. Now some people will say this really wasn't Samuel, um, but the biblical text here indicates it was. There is nothing in this text that indicates this was a demon talking or just Saul's imagination. Um, in fact, one of the, there, there are certain things in Scripture that sometimes that are, that are almost a little comical. And this, mm-hmm. this to me is almost a little comical because it appears that Samuel's a little bit <coughs> irked by the fact that Saul called him up. And, you know, granted, if he's hanging out with the Heavenly Father, or he's hanging out in what's, what's probably referred to as Abraham's bosom, Um, Yeah, I'd get a little earthed too if they called me back to earth. So there's a little bit of comedy here, but uh, 1 Samuel chapter 28, we have Saul in the spirit medium. And so Saul disguises himself. He goes to this witch of Endor. He asks her to to bring up Samuel. And and listen to what happened. We're going to start in verse 8. Then Samuel disguised himself by putting on other clothes and went. He and two men with them, And they came to the woman by night, and he said, conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. But the woman said, behold, you know what Saul, she didn't recognize Saul at this point, you know what Saul's done, he, um, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why then are you laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? In other words, hey, you know, Saul said he's going to kill all the mediums if they do this kind of stuff. Why are you trying to entrap me here? She didn't know this was Saul." So Saul vowed by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for doing this thing. And the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul Saul saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. Now, another reason I believe that this is probably really Saul, or really Samuel, and not just some demon or other spirit. The witch freaks out. And she probably freaked out because she didn't expect Samuel to show up. Which means she either was faking it all the time, or she's expecting some other spiritual form or something. But she freaks out because this is Samuel. The king said to her, Do not be afraid, verse 13, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine, or I see a divine being coming out of the earth. He said to her, What is this form? And She said, "An old man is coming up, and he's wrapped in a robe." And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed his face to the ground and did homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, "Why have you disturbed me, bringing me back up?" And Saul answered, "I am greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me. God has departed from me, and no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I called you that you may have, or you may make known to me what I should do." Samuel said, "Notice it says Samuel said, doesn't call it a demon." Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? So we have Samuel speaking the truth here. Another reason why I don't believe this is a demon. The Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me, Samuel. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, to David. As you did not obey the Lord, you did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek. So the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also give you or give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. So basically what we have here is evidence of life after death, because Samuel is talking, if you will, from the grave. If he was annihilated or something that didn't exist anymore after death, he wouldn't be talking, would he? And again, the Bible presents it here as if this is Samuel. Talking, He even says, hey, just like I said to you when I was alive. So again, the evidence in the text here is that this is Samuel. Now, how this happened, why this happened, you know, we're not sure why God permitted this. But for some reason, he permitted Samuel to talk from the other side, if you will, to Saul. Not a a usual thing, obviously, but God permitted it in this case. Now there's another example. Two more individuals from the Old Testament that appeared in the New Testament alive. Two more. We'll call them dead people. Yeah, the transfiguration. The transfiguration. Yeah. Who are the two that appeared at Christ's transfiguration? Do you remember? Moses was one of them. Yeah. And who else? Elijah. I want you to turn to Luke chapter nine. Steve, do you want to another piece of candy?
1: <laughs> no, thanks. We're cutting down.
0: Luke chapter 9, verse
1: 28. I thought you'd have to go on to read. What's that? I thought you'd have to go on to read.
0: You could if you'd like to. Would you like to for us? 28 to 36?
1: 9, 28 to 36. Yeah,
0: real loud for us.
1: Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they saw, but when they uh, were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud form began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. We
0: can go ahead and stop there. So what we have here is Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus about what he was getting ready to do. And we have three disciples that are there as well witnessing this, eyewitnesses to Moses and Elijah, talking to Jesus. It wasn't a vision that they had. This was physically Jesus talking to two individuals from the Old Testament. And so we have Mm -hmm. historical examples. Now there's one more I won't have you necessarily turn there with me, but in Revelation chapter 7, in John's vision, he sees a multitude of people. It says that the multitude was so big they couldn't count them. And those were saints who had died and were waiting for Jesus Christ to return. And it's a picture of the saints actually up in heaven waiting. And that's what I'm going to call a future historical reference. Uh, When it comes to the Bible, you have not just historical things. When we think of historical things, we think of things in the past, don't we? Things that have already happened. But because of the certainty of the Bible, there are future things that are just as historical. Meaning, they might not have happened yet, but they're certain to happen. And John's vision is one of them. That John sees during the tribulation period saints all waiting, all robed in white, and it says that the multitude can't even be counted. That's saved people. There's people waiting for Jesus Christ to return to the earth and to finalize the redemptive plan. And so we have at least these four examples here from the scriptures of death after life, I'm sorry, life after death. So we do have, I'm going to call it historical evidence. So we have not just what the Bible says, that life exists not just now, but after we die. But we also have the historical examples. Now, we're going to do some terms here, some defining of some terms so that we can understand um, how the Bible refers to life after death. The first word, obviously, you know what it is. It's the word heaven. Okay. What is heaven? Ultimately, what heaven is, according to the scriptures, is where God abides, or where God abode is, if you will. It's where God the Father actually sits. It's where His his uh, throne is. Turn to Psalm chapter 11. Psalm chapter 11. Psalm chapter 11, verse 4. 4. It says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is where? The The Lord's throne is in heaven. So there's a physical place called heaven, and it's where the Lord's throne is. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 22, if you would. 1 Kings 22, verse 19. Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And so again, we have this reference to heaven being God's abode where his throne is. The book of Revelation tells us as he sits there, he's surrounded by angelic beings and elders, and it's very majestic. Anybody remember um, Isaiah's vision? Remember Isaiah chapter 6. go ahead and I'll just read it to you. Isaiah mm-hmm. chapter 6. <laughs> In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings and With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for the eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And so we have this amazing picture of Isaiah standing before the throne of God in his vision. In the temple, so within heaven we have a temple. We have God sitting on his throne. We have angelic beings all surrounding God. So heaven ultimately in the scriptures is a definition or a description of where God lives, if you will. It's his heavenly abode. Now, the Old Testament indicates that the final and eternal resting place of the righteous is in the presence of God. Now, that you would assume that that means in heaven. It's not clear, however, if that happened immediately after death or if it's something that comes at a future time. I think it's something that ultimately comes at a future time, and I'll describe that in a little bit, but you've got the references in there, Psalm chapter 23 and Psalm chapter 73. Talk about the righteous going to be with God in his presence. You would assume that he's in heaven and probably there, but again, there's no real indication in the Old Testament when that happens. Now, another term that's used in the Old Testament is the word shoal. Some people pronounce it shale. It's S-H-E-O-L. And this is actually a general reference to the underworld where both the righteous and the unrighteous go. So the Old Testament described the place where you went after you died as a place called shale, the underworld. Um, again, the wicked and the righteous both went there. Now that might confuse us a little bit. But you remember in Psalm chapter 9 verse 17, David prayed that God would not abandon him or leave him in Sheol. We also have other references to that in the Old Testament. You've got, you've got that in your notes as well. Psalm chapter 13, or 31. Psalm chapter 16, verse 10 is the reference to David. It also appears in Luke chapter 16. I want you to go ahead and turn there and then Jesus was probably referring to Sheol as well. Luke chapter 16. I want you to turn there with me. And this will all become clear as we work our way into the New Testament. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. You remember this story, the rich man and Lazarus? Verse 19, chapter 16, now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid in the gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs with which were falling from the rich man's table beside even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool cool my tongue off, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things, and now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that they may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear from them. But he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So what we basically have here is Jesus describing Sheol. And it appears that Sheol has two, I'll call them, compartments, if you will. A place called Abraham's bosom, which is where Lazarus ended up, the righteous man. And then what he refers to here is Hades, a place of torment, which is where the rich man ended up. So when the Old Testament speaks of, of people dying going to shale, it doesn't mean they're going to hell. It's, in some respects, a temporary place where they're awaiting the ultimate judgment. They're waiting for probably Christ. Um, it's primarily an Old Testament concept. Jesus, at this point, is still talking in Old Testament terms. But there's a place of sort of rest, Abraham's bosom. And there's a place of torment, Hades. And here's so that they are both temporary if you will, temporary holding places. Daniel also refers in Daniel 12, too, he says this, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will wake, these to everlasting life, but to others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And so Daniel references Sheol as well, not by name, but that the dead are waiting. Some are waiting in rest, some are waiting in torment. And again, that's a reference to this place called Sheol. Now, what about New Testament terms? Well, heaven is used in the New Testament as well. Um, but it, the New Testament introduces a new term, paradise. Anybody know what paradise is? There's a famous verse where that's referred to. When the
1: thief was
0: hanging Yeah, when the thief was hanging on the cross. Remember how the story goes? There's two thieves, one on each side of Jesus. One of them is getting belligerent and telling Jesus, you know, hey, save yourself and save us, come off the cross. And the other thief, who's repentant, kind of calls him out on it and says, we're here because we deserve it. This man has absolutely done nothing wrong. And then he looks at Jesus and asks him to remember him. What does Jesus tell him? Yeah. Today you'll be with me where? In paradise. in paradise. So the New Testament introduces this term <coughs> called paradise. That's Luke chapter 23. But it's also referenced in Second Corinthians and the book of Revelation. And paradise is probably a reference to heaven, a reference to God's abode as well. It's where Jesus went At his resurrection, it says he went to be with the Father. And so likely, paradise is probably the equivalent of heaven. Now some would argue that paradise is a reference to wherever Christ is at. Whenever he's there. Meaning that paradise is in heaven when he's in heaven. Paradise is here on earth when he's back here on earth. There's not enough evidence to say one way or the other. But paradise is definitely a reference to where saved people go after they die. Now, the New Testament introduces another term as well. It's a term that we're very familiar with, and it's the term hell. In most English Bibles, the word hell only appears in the New Testament, and it's translated primarily by a Greek word, Gehenna. Now, it's kind of interesting with this. Gehenna was basically a valley south of Jerusalem. It was a real place. It's a place where the ancient Israelites sacrificed their children. Remember, in the Old Testament, there's a term, um, walking their kids through the fire. And it was a, a reference to child sacrifice. The Canaanites would sacrifice their children to the Canaanite gods. And the Israelites, when they moved into Canaan and kick the Canaanites out, they adopted their beliefs. And so the Israelites, as a form of worshiping, would pass their children through the fire. And they generally did that at a place um, that is now was, was referred to as hell, if you want. There's different terms, Gehenna and whatnot in the Greek, but that's primarily the way we would translate it today was hell. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? place of fiery torment, children being sacrificed. Now, in Jesus' day specifically, there was a place just outside, which is where they threw all their trash, all their sewage, and it burned 24 hours a day. Just burned. And that was also referred to as Gehenna. That's where we get our term hell from. Again, a very visual image. What's interesting about the way that these terms are used, the terms for hell, whether it's Gehenna or, or other things in the New Testament, what's interesting is that it's almost never used, literally. So when the Bible uses the term for hell, it isn't referring to that trashy, It isn't referring to the place that they sacrificed their children. Instead, it's used metaphorically every single time. To refer to a place of judgment, condemnation, and eternal punishment. How about turning to Matthew chapter 5? Matthew chapter 5. Verse 22. I'll start at 21. This is Jesus speaking. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court." But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Jesus is referring not to going out to the city trashy, but rather to this eternal place of torment. How about um, chapter 23 of the same book? 23, verse 33. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the wicked. He says they fill up for themselves a measure of guilt of their fathers. And then he says this, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of, and he uses the word hell. Yeah, again, it's being used figuratively. And so this is the way that it's actually being used in the New Testament. Always used figuratively. To refer to a place of eternal judgment, a place of wickedness, a place of torment. And it's described as being a place where one spends eternity. Now there's one instance, Second Peter, where hell is translated from the Greek word um, Tartaros instead of the word, Greek word Gehenna. And again, it refers to a place where the dead go, the wicked, after death. So we have heaven, we have paradise. We yeah, the term hell. We also have the Greek word Hades that's also used in the New Testament. That's a Greek term for the underworld. It's where the dead go when they die. Some say it's equivalent to or equated to shale in the Old Testament. So while the Hebrews had their concept of shale, that everyone dies, they go to shale afterwards, and in shale there's a place of rest, waiting. Abraham's bosom, and there's a place of condemnation or torment. That's Hades. Well, in the, Greek, in, the, in the New Testament, Hades kind of refers to that shale, place after death. It isn't necessarily a place of torment. There's like a place of torment within it, if you want to describe it that way. It's used in Luke chapter 16. It's really used opposite heaven, if you will. Now, Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 it says that those that are in Hades, and it's referring to the condemnation place in Hades, get dumped in a lake of fire ultimately. So even though there's some indication that Hades might be used generally to speak of shale, more often when it's used in the New Testament it's referring to that tormented place in shale. Um, it's sort of our equivalent to hell, if you will. Now one last term, or phrase, is lake of fire. Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. do want you to turn there with me. Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. And the beast was seized, and with them the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, those who worshipped his image, those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the throne, and all the, ber- all the birds were filled with their flesh. We jump to chapter 20, verse 10. It says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And notice what it says and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Look at verses 14 and 15 the same chapter, chapter 20. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so we have this yeah, I think it's the fifth term here, or phrase, lake of fire, describing an actual place where people go after they die. Now, according to Jesus in Matthew 24, the lake of fire was created actually for Satan and his angels, Satan and his demons. It was a form of punishment God created for them, but unfortunately, those that choose to walk in the footsteps of Satan and his demons end up there as well. And it wasn't created for that purpose. God did not create the lake of fire to judge he did it to judge Satan's angels, but unfortunately, because some choose to follow in their footsteps, it ultimately will be the place of eternity for them as well. Notice that in that chapter 20 of Revelation, it says that it's day and night forever. It's eternal. But ultimately, it happens at the end of time, if you will. So we have these, these terms. So the best way I could summarize this for you is that when people die, In the Old Testament, Old Testament saints, when they would die, would go to Sheol. The righteous would go to a place called Abraham's bosom, which is a place of rest. They would simply wait, probably, for Christ, for his redemptive work, and ultimately the glorification of their bodies. But then there was also another component, component to it, which the Greeks referred to as Hades. It was a place of torment, but it was a temporary place. But Sheol was a temporary place, not a permanent place. The permanent place is paradise, heaven, if you will, presence with Christ, or the lake of fire. So in some respects, when we say things like, you know, you're condemned to hell forever, that's actually false. Because hell in in many respects is a temporary place. What the wicked are condemned to is a lake of fire. If you want to be more specific and theologically accurate. So what does the Bible actually say that happens after death? Well, in the Old Testament, people died they went to shale, as I mentioned, um, where they basically wait. Some are in rest, some are in a form of torment. Now, what's interesting is when Jesus rose, remember what happened? There was kind of a freaky thing that happened when Jesus rose. Anybody remember what that was? He came out of the grave, but did some folks come out with him? Yeah, the text tells us that Old Testament saints, likely those in the bosom of Abraham, came up if you will, from the grave, so to speak. And they walked around the earth as witnesses. But when Jesus went to heaven, they went with Jesus. So that was, in some respects, an emptying of Abraham's bosom, a part of Sheol. Now, we're told in Luke chapter 23 that when we die, we go to paradise. Same thing that Jesus told the thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Paul says that when you know, he was struggling with, should I stick around or should I should I go? What's, what's best? He says, what? It's better for me to stick around. I'd much rather be with the Lord because to die means I'm in his presence. But I'm going to stick around here because it's much more beneficial to you. So when Christians die, we go to be with Christ. Now, where that is? Well, Christ is currently in heaven, sitting next to God the Father which means that we, when we die, go to paradise, we go with Christ, we go to be with him, but because he said we'll be with him forever, there's some interesting things that actually take place there, because we don't ultimately stay in heaven forever. Um, There's some things that happen, we'll discuss those. When Christ returns, those in paradise with him will return with him, it says. Remember that, the rapture, what happens? Jesus Christ will return with the saints, those of us that are here, okay, get changed to be with Christ, we take on glorified bodies. We don't die. We get transformed, if you will, changed. Those that are dead in Christ waiting will also be raised up and given their bodies. So they'll all come back with Christ. And then at the end of time, we're told that God will create a new heavens and a new earth and that Christ will be here on earth in a new earth with saints. And it says that we will reign with him. Which means... The other concept of spending eternity in heaven is also not really a true statement, theologically. Because we won't spend eternity in heaven, but rather we will spend eternity with Christ on a new earth. In some respects, it's a return to the garden, but so much better, because Christ dwells within us. So I don't mean to shatter any preconceived concepts about eternity in hell or eternity in heaven, because again, those aren't really theological concepts. The righteous will spend eternity with Christ, ultimately, in heaven with him until he returns and takes his rightful place on new heavens, or on the new earth. And the wicked will spend eternity in the lake of fire, ultimately. So what determines where someone goes after death? We'll spend a little bit of time on this, and then we'll get into some some final thoughts on how to answer for these objections. The Bible declares that every person is a sinner. Listen to this, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So every human being that has ever walked the planet, every human being that will ever walk the planet, is unrighteous, he's wicked. Now what does that mean? We have a righteous God, don't we? Deuteronomy chapter 32 indicates that God is just. God is righteous. He has to judge sin. But you know what's interesting about this? I want you to just listen to Ezekiel 33 for just a moment. This is God speaking. He says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Here's what's interesting about God. God is loving, and he's gracious, and he's kind, but he's also a righteous judge. Which means he's got to judge sin. You know, when we put a judge on the bench here you know in the US, that judge doesn't have the freedom or flexibility to ignore the law, does he? And God is the same way. Because God is righteous, he has to deal with sin. But he doesn't take any pleasure in that. As he was looking at the Israelites, and we, we've, we've studied the Israelites, we've we looked at Joshua and his conqueror, you know, his, his conquering of, of Canaan, and then we looked at through Judges on how Israel constantly thumbed their nose at God, continued in their sin, no matter how kind and gracious and merciful he was to we had to keep bringing these people in to judge them, right? And yet, he tells Ezekiel here, I, I don't take any pleasure in that. I don't take pleasure in, in the death of the wicked. Notice it doesn't say he doesn't take pleasure in the death of the righteous. That We accept that. That makes sense, right? But he says, I don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. I don't like to have to judge the wicked. But he says why he does it here. So that they might turn from their wicked ways. The reason God judges is not just because he's righteous, but because he's trying to drive people to repentance. He's trying to get them to turn from wickedness. He doesn't take any pleasure in that. He doesn't enjoy dealing with sin. He certainly didn't enjoy putting Jesus Christ on the cross. But he did that because he's trying to drive people to change. He's trying to drive them away from their sin. I've told you the story before about my own dad. And I had grew up a really great family, but I was just rebellious, you know. I had an attitude against my parents, and especially my dad. And um, I was getting in a lot of trouble when I was 12, 13 years of age, and um, really on a bad course, hanging out with the wrong people. And my dad and mom kept warning me about the trouble I was getting into because of the friends I was hanging around with. And yet they were just sort of, you know, they didn't put their foot down and until it really got pretty bad and finally Dad said, no, this isn't going to happen anymore. And um, kind of gave me a final ultimatum, this will stop, you're not to do this anymore, and I ignored him. And I remember um, my mom caught me doing some stuff that um, that my dad had warned me about. I was hanging out with some friends that I wasn't supposed to hang out with. Mom saw me over at their house. And so I remember when I came home, or when Dad came home from work that night, we were all sitting at the dinner table and Dad said, Mike, you're gonna join me downstairs. I think I've told you the story before. Um, okay, it's kind of weird, you know. We go downstairs and he said, You stay here, and then he disappeared into his workbench and he came back with a piece of wood. <laughs> Mr. Spanky was fairly large. Um, uh, nothing abusive, but big enough to, you know, make an impact, if you will. And he just said, Drop your drop your pants. I went, excuse me? And he said, Drop your pants. I said, uh, this is gonna happen. He just gonna looked at me and said, I'm gonna tell you the last time, drop your pants. And so I did, I had to take my just not my underwear, but just my regular pants. And he said, no, grab your ankles. And I said, this isn't happening. And he said, you don't understand. This is happening whether you like it or not. And I knew better. My dad was bigger than me. And so I did. I bent over and I grabbed my ankles. And I don't remember, I think he probably smacked my bottom three or four times. Nothing. And it, it stung. But no bruising, no marks. Now some people would say, that's abuse. How could you do that? You know? Um, I remember he looked at me when he got all done, he said, so This stops. You don't hang out with these people. You're my son. I'm responsible for you. I love you. But this is going to end. He gave me a hug. We went back upstairs and we sat down and ate dinner. It was the last time I saw that friend. I made a choice at that point. And it was because my dad had taken a stand. Now, again, some people are saying it's abuse. I'm not suggesting we beat our kids. What I'm saying is that my dad did not take any pleasure in that at all. That broke his heart. In fact, a number of years later, when I was sitting in the car talking to my dad as an adult, he was weeping, weeping over some of the discipline. Um, And again, none of it was abusive. None of it was wrong. But he just felt like I could have been a better father. But um, he took no pleasure in that. But he did it because he loved his son. And thank God he did. Changed my life. A whole different direction. Um, I began to recognize his authority. So he didn't take any pleasure in that, nor does God. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? God not only takes no joy in judging the wicked, but he's gone as far as to offer a free gift of salvation to those that are willing to accept it. He's willing to extend grace. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 says, Being justified as a gift by his grace, the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. You know, as we study the book of Romans, we're going to be getting back into the end of the book of Romans here, um, finishing up the last few chapters. But if you remember, the first chunk of Romans is all about God's wrath and then God's provision for that wrath in saving people. And that's exactly what we see in the scriptures here. So, to answer the question, how could a loving God send someone to hell or to the lake of fire, to be more specific? I think we have to do something with that. I think that puts the focus on the wrong place. When somebody says, how can a loving God condemn someone to hell, I think we have to basically say, wait a minute. God takes no pleasure in that. It's not who God is. He does it because mankind is rebelled. But you know what? I'd rather talk with you about how a loving, gracious God paid the penalty for our sin instead. How because he took no pleasure in judging, knowing that he was righteous and has to judge, he made it possible to assuage that judgment and instead has offered grace and mercy by sending his son to die on the cross. That's the real issue. People want to focus on loving God condemning people to hell instead of loving God saving people from hell. That's ultimately where the question has to be. You're going to see in your section, Knowing How to Respond, there's a number of questions there. I'll let you guys work through those. Like I said, I encourage you to talk about them as a, as a family. Um, ultimately, again, I think what we have to do is take that question. The Bible tells us that God clearly does condemn people who like a fire for eternity. But he also grants eternal life as a free gift to anybody that wants it. So I think to answer that question again, what we need to do is to try to turn the discussion not ignore it. Answer the question of why God has to judge unrighteousness but then turn the question back around to how can a loving God so graciously give a free gift of salvation, how could he condemn his own son to save you and turn it into a discussion about God's grace rather than a discussion about God's